If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are, in Britain particularly, concerned and almost obsessed with the story of mud and blood, of soldiers, the Somme. It's a Tommy's eye view of the war. That was David Reynolds, author of a new book on the First World War. Paradoxically and ironically, it's in South Africa and in London that Gandhi becomes an Indian, rather than simply someone imprisoned in the conventions of his own narrow caste or community. And that was Ramachandra Guha talking about Mahatma Gandhi. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these formats, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Professor David Reynolds is a historian based at the University of Cambridge. He has written widely on 20th century international history, and for his latest book, The Long Shadow, he is investigating the legacy of the First World War over the century that followed. I caught up with David a couple of weeks ago to find out more. With the centenary of the First World War approaching, why have you decided to focus on the war's legacy rather than, say, the origins or the main events of the war itself? 
Well, I think that our conception of the Great War has become somewhat stuck in the trenches, um, that we are, in Britain particularly, concerned and almost obsessed with the story of mud and blood, of soldiers, the Somme. It's a Tommy's eye view of the war, and that's in one way entirely right, and it's a very rich and moving human experience. But I think that the war has huge consequences for Europe and for Britain, which we've tended to neglect. And so that's why I'm interested in tracing the the long shadow that the war has cast over the 20th century. So you talk about the long shadow, but but what about the immediate shadow? What do you see as a really important consequences of the war for Europe and Britain over the subsequent years? Well, the first half of my book looks at various types of legacies um, in the immediate years after 1918. Uh, One of them, for example, is the explosion of mass democracy in many countries. And in this issue, as on others, I think that the British experience of the fallout was somewhat different, that we coped better with a mass democratic franchise, with votes for working men and votes for women, than, say, Italy or Germany, where the result tended to be a highly polarised political system, a tension between legislature and executive, fallout in terms of paramilitary movements and violence on the streets, none of which really affected us uh, in, in the same way. So I'm looking in the book, in the first half of the book, particularly at some of these uh, these immediate consequences for the 20s and 30s and picking up the sense that often Britain was rather unusual in the way that we coped. And why do you think it was that Britain, as you say, coped so much better than some of our continental neighbours? Well, in the political area, I think we already had a parliamentary system which had basically decided the issue of of where power lay, in other words, in the legislature. Um, That was an issue that we fought over in the 17th century with the civil wars. That's when the issue of parliamentary sovereignty was decided. Uh, Germany, for example, didn't have a parliamentary system until 1918. uh, Although it had a Reichstag, it didn't have, uh, the Reichstag didn't have much say in the the government of the Kaiser's Germany. And that was a huge change. Um, So I think that's one of them. Uh, Also, I think that there is a, uh, uh, in Britain, a, a, a tradition of reasonably well established civil society. In other words, of Uh, social groups, social groups outside the state, not controlled by the state, which shaped the character of society so that the Labour Party, when it comes to power, is not in 1924, is not a group of uh, a radicalised, alienated proletariat, but is, uh, you know, people whose, whose sense of socialism has been shaped by their involvement in uh, nonconformist churches, for example, in social groups that are not politicised in the way that, say, the social democratic po- uh, culture was in Germany. Um, and so we're, they're more part of the, of the mainstream or of the larger culture than was the case in, in many continental countries. And so to what extent do you, do you believe that the impact of the First World War led on then to the Second World War? Well, in some ways it obviously did. I mean, in Germany, for example, there is a sense of... Um, 
fundamental dissatisfaction in many parts of society with the results of the war. The fact that Germany, though not the German army, though, didn't, though it hadn't been defeated on German soil in 1918, nevertheless the country fell apart, Germany received, was, had enforced on it a, uh, a, a peace treaty which was bitterly resented that reduced it to the level of a minor power. And although that's not uh, in the 20s a cause for many Germans to feel that they need to go to war again, the idea of revising the Treaty of Versailles by diplomatic means, by pressure short of war, is something that people generally accept. And after the um, collapse of German economy and the depression, worst depression in Europe, uh, uh, and Hitler gains power, his uh, narrative, his argument, that his spin on 1918, that it was a lost victory that had to be redeemed by another war, that becomes much more acceptable. So obviously there is, in a sense, a, a connection between the, the leftover business of 1918 and what then happens in 1939, but I wouldn't trace it as an inevitable story. And indeed, one of my chapters is called Capitalism, and I try and emphasize the centrality of the collapse of the global economic system in the early 30s as a, an explanation for why political extremism becomes acceptable in many countries, not just Germany, but in Japan, for example, as well. So I don't think we should say that there is an inevitable line from the end of one war to the beginning of another. And that's part of what I'm trying to explore in these chapters on the 20s and 30s. And, and so do you believe that because of the Second World War, we now have a very different view of the First World War than we would have done had the Second World War never happened? Well, I think it has, it has affected our view. The, the first half of the book, um, called Legacies, is about the 20s and 30s, understood by people who lived through them as the post-war years. In other words, the years after a war in which the future was still open. Whereas nowadays, of course, we tend to think of the 20s and 30s as the interwar years, the years between one war and another. In other words, a period that's almost in brackets between these conflicts. Um, and that was a view that obviously uh, was uh, created by the experience of 1939 to 45 in Britain, uh, in the 20s and 30s, people referred to 1418 as the Great War, uh, echoes of the war against Napoleon. It's only after 1945 that we start referring to uh, 1418 as the First World War and 39-45 as the Second World War. In other words, creating that sense of 1914-18 um, as a rather ineffective first round of a struggle that then had to have another more decisive second round 25 years later. Obviously that perspective is one that creates a sense of, of, of 1418 as futile, ineffective and so on. So before the Second World War, do you think the people generally had a less negative view of the First World War, even though it was more recent than perhaps we do today? I think there were a variety of views, and many of those views came to the surface around anniversaries, just as we're talking now because the 100th anniversary is coming up. The 10th anniversary of the ending of the war in 1928 was a period when a lot of discussion came to the surface that was too painful to have immediately after 1918 about 
what life was like for soldiers and so on and what had been achieved or not achieved. But I think the, the verdicts were mixed. And of course, one of the big things that people took out of the, uh, the, the situation in the 1930s was the feeling that the last war, 1418, could be justified, was justified, if it was the war to end wars. In other words, if its legacy was peace. And um, the, th that was why in the mid-30s in this country, we had the biggest peace movement in the world. Uh, we had the, the peace ballot of 1934-35, which was something that's pretty much forgotten now, but involved the signatories of maybe 11 million people, huge uh, mobilization of support in favor of the League of Nations, against the private armaments industry, a mass attempt to try and ensure uh, by popular uh, involvement in diplomacy that the last war was indeed going to be the last war. Um, that, of course, then all disappears in, in 1939. But it's a movement, the peace ballot, that's well worth remembering. And it's indeed one of my chapters in, in the first half of the book. It's interesting because nowadays we probably do think of the Second World War as a really big decisive break in recent history. So for people in, say, the 20s and 30s, did the First World War occupy that same function? Uh, yeah, I think it did because we had not had a major European war that we were involved in since the conflicts against revolutionary France and Napoleon a century before, ending at Waterloo in 1815. Um, there had been wars on the continent, for example, the wars of German unification in the 1860s, 1870 against France, but um, we had not been involved in those epic conflicts. Um, our wars had been uh, fought far, far away on the edges of empire, uh, northwest frontier of India, Afghanistan, Egypt, places like that, Sudan, uh, so that a continental war was something novel for us and of course we have to remember this is in terms of the death toll the biggest war in British military history. 720,000 British dead, uh, nearly a million if you take in the the Commonwealth, the Empire as well. So this is a war which was truly great by the experience and the memory of most people who lived through it. Following the Second World War how did things like the Cold War then impact how we understood the First World War? Well, the, the Cold War uh, in, in the West, I think, um, confirms our sense in Britain of 1939-45 as an epic struggle for freedom and democracy, which we are carrying on fighting, though more peacefully, in the Cold War. In Eastern Europe, of course, um, the whole question of what happened in 1914-18 is kind of frozen by the Cold War. Uh, in many East European countries, for example, the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, um, the end of the First World War was, uh, became a freedom struggle against uh, uh, the Tsarist Empire, against the Germans, uh, to achieve national independence. In 1944, the Red Army takes control permanently of those countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. They are brought within the Soviet Union. They are brought under Soviet control. And discussion of uh, 
their history, their First World War history, uh, as indeed most free discussion is completely frozen out during the Soviet period. After the Cold War is over, there's a huge explosion of historical discussion in these countries, in Poland as well, uh, to try and recover that lost national memory. So that whereas in this country we have gradually looked and relooked and reviewed the Great War over the course of the 20th century, in much of Eastern Europe, uh, the Cold War froze that discussion. The end of the Cold War has suddenly created almost an avalanche of historical discussion now that the glacier of the Cold War has come to an end, has been unfrozen, so that a huge amount of history is being discussed and caught up with in a, a, a mad and often rather violent rush. On the other side of the world, what, what's been the American reaction to the First World War? How have American attitudes changed to it over the years? Well, the Americans, of course, were involved relatively late, from April 1917 until uh, November 1918. Their death toll, at least in combat, was relatively small, 53,000. Double that number, another 50,000, died from the influenza epidemic as soldiers in uniform, but they weren't in combat. The Americans tended to regard it particularly as a story about... Um, the role of Woodrow Wilson, the American president, his vision of a world made safe for democracy, a world in which empires didn't have so much of a say, a world which um, was supposedly going to be shaped by the League of Nations. But then Wilson's vision of the League failed to get the support of the American Senate. So Wilson becomes a, a, a figure of failure, a political problem for the Democratic Party that pulls away from the, the Wilson legacy in the 20s and 30s. And of course, in the 30s, the United States is very isolationist about European entanglements. Once it gets into the war, and it doesn't get in really voluntarily, it's as a consequence of, of Pearl Harbor in particular, then the United States view changes. Then the, the war of 1941 to 45, as it is for the Americans, becomes a, a second chance. This is the word off, phrase often used, a second chance to, re, to uh, achieve the Wilsonian vision. In 1944, there's a major movie made of Woodrow Wilson. I've got a picture of it in uh, of one of the posters in my book, um, which retrieves Wilson as a tragic but far-sighted visionary who wasn't able to get what he wanted done in 1918, 1919, but now is the, as it were, the pioneer of the kind of world that Americans want to see. And Wilson again has been picked up in the late 20th century with the, the neoconservatives. The neoconservatives, after the end of the Cold War, had, in the era of, of particularly George W. Bush, George II, a very strong sense of a world safe, made safe for democracy, a uh, particularly a Middle East made safe for democracy. And it's that Wilsonian vision that's at the heart of, for example, the project to overthrow Saddam Hussein and transform Iraq. Coming on to the present day now, where do you think we are at the moment in the cycle of our understanding of the First World War? Do you think we finally got to a sort of level-headed, appropriate place? Well, I don't know that I'd ever want to use the word or the phrase level-headed because, you know, our views of the past are shaped by very particular and very understandable concerns in the present. What we have in this country is a very moving set of rituals of remembrance for the soldiers who fought in the Great War. The two-minute silence, the cenotaph, the poppies and so on, 
And those rituals have been adapted to embrace the dead of more recent wars, to the dead of Afghanistan, for example, in a way that is, is very moving. I think that this focus on the soldiers is very much a product of the 1960s onwards of an interest in history from the bottom up, uh, social history uh, rather than history about generals and big international themes. What I think is that the patterns of remembrance we will have over the next few years will indeed focus a lot on human experiences of the war, of soldiers, of people on the home front. Uh, BBC is much involved in, in some of these projects, working with the Imperial War Museum, individual stories, moving stories. But what I think we are ready to do now and we need to do is recognise that the soldiers of 1914 are as far away from us as those soldiers were from the men who fought at the Battle of Waterloo, in other words, a hundred years apart. And it's time, in a sense, to, to take a broader view of the war, as well as remembering the dead, as well as pondering the moral issues of war and peace, um, and to think about the legacies of the war, not just for Britain, there is a huge story to tell, and some are doing it, about the effect of the war on India, on China. Uh, these are stories we need to know about as well. So it's to take a broader view of the consequences of the war, not just to remember the men who fought and died in it. Just one last question. Do you think we have now, or do you think we will ever escape this long shadow of the First World War? It's hard to say, Rob. I think that, as I said earlier, it's the biggest war in British history by far. The death toll is huge. The causes of the war remain rather puzzling to most people. There will be much more debate in the next year or so about what exactly happened in the summer of 1914, but it's not a clear-cut story in the way that it does seem to be for 1939. Um, the question about why the war went on for so long, why in some ways it wasn't a conclusive victory, these are reasons why I think people will keep coming back to it and asking whether the cost made sense in terms of why it started and how it ended. So I think it's this combination of a huge death toll and genuine puzzles about explaining this war that will, I, I think, mean that it will cast for a long time to come a long shadow over our 21st century views of what happened. That was David Reynolds. David is going to be speaking at a First World War Day event that we're holding in Bristol on the 16th of March. For more details of that and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And do look out for a review of David's book in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which will be out in the new year. Meanwhile, our Christmas issue has just hit the shops. This month is an Ancient Britain special, with articles about the Celts, Stonehenge and pagan rituals. Also in the magazine, we're telling the story of the Arctic convoys of the Second World War, exploring the impact of the Black Death and revealing the most dangerous animals of Tudor times. If you like the sound of any of that, then why not pick up a copy of our Christmas issue at all good news agents or digitally. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Before our next interview, it's time for our History News Roundup with our web editor, Emma McFarnan. The original tombs planned for Henry VIII's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, and the Tudor monarch's father-in-law, Thomas Howard, the third Duke of Norfolk, have been digitally reconstructed by a team at the University of Leicester. The unfinished tombs, which were lost during the Reformation, have been virtually recreated to enable researchers to see what they might have looked like at their earmarked site in Thetford Priory. The team has used original pieces of the monument, drawings in 16th century manuscripts, 3D laser scanning and 3D prints to recreate the monuments as they were originally intended to look. To see the tombs for yourself, visit historyextra.com. Meanwhile, handcuffs, leg irons and padlocks used by illusionist Harry Houdini are to be auctioned off next week. The props, utilised by the Hungarian-American escape artist in the 1900s, are expected to sell for around £8,000. The handcuffs were likely used in Houdini's underwater escapes. The items are to be auctioned on Thursday the 12th of December. In other news, the Battle of Hastings may have occurred not on the site of the High Altar of Battle Abbey, where it is commemorated, but on a mini roundabout. That is according to new research carried out by Channel 4's Time Team. An investigation has concluded that the battle and the death of King Harold took place on a site now occupied by a road junction on the A2100 in East Sussex. Thanks for that, Emma. For more history news, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com. Ramachandra Guha is a renowned Indian historian and intellectual who has held academic posts in both the United States and the United Kingdom. For his latest project, Guha has embarked on an ambitious two-volume biography of the Indian leader Mahatma Gandhi, the first book of which has just been published. Entitled Gandhi Before India, it tells the story of Gandhi's younger life including the years he spent living in London and South Africa. I met up with Ramachandra in the offices of his publisher, Penguin, and over a cup of tea, he explained to me how Gandhi's early years helped shape his later career, and also why he believes Gandhi was the most influential figure of the 20th century. My first question to Ramachandra was why he had decided to split up Gandhi's life in this manner. Well, there are several reasons. Uh, one is, of course, he's a colossally important figure. In my view, he's the most influential and interesting political leader of the modern world. Uh, so he deserves an extended treatment. Sec- the second reason is that I've, in, in the course of my research, I found huge amounts of new material uh, on his life, which uh, historians hadn't used before, which I think justified two volumes. The third reason is that, in particular, the South African period of his life, the formative years, uh, where he developed his religious, political, social ideas, uh, had been neglected, and that's where I had the most interesting material. So I wanted to tell that story of the first 40 years in full detail. And the fourth reason is that there's a logical break. The first volume is about London and South Africa. The second volume will be about India. So unlike other major figures, for example, if you take a life of uh, Churchill or Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. where do you break it up? 
But here, there's a logical break, particularly if you consider Gandhi's historical importance. And uh, the story of Gandhi is also to be the history of the societies in which he lived. Yeah. So this book is a history of Gujarat, his home province where he grew up, a history of late Victorian London, and a history of Imperial South Africa, as well as a story of Gandhi, his struggles, his ideas, and so on. And the second book, likewise, will be a, a story of Gandhi and his struggles, his ideas, his friendships, but also a history of the making of Indian nationalism, a history of the last days of the British Raj, the history of the world war and India's role in the world war. So in that sense, uh, I felt for all these reasons, uh, I needed to do a two-volume biography. And the first volume uh, needed to focus on Gandhi's years in the diaspora and end with his taking a ship to come back to India, which is why I called it Gandhi before India. Volume two will be Gandhi in India. So I think there are many reasons that justify uh, not just a two-volume biography, but the precise break between volume one and volume two. Clearly, most of the things that Gandhi's best known for happened in the second half of, of his life. But do you feel that the formative years are actually just as important to understanding Gandhi as his later years are? Without question, because, uh, you know, this is both England uh, and South Africa are, are going through a very interesting point in their history. It's the end of the Victorian era. Mm. It's the rise of radical politics in England, and Gandhi's caught in that. Uh, he's also shaped by it. As I argue in my book, it's the London vegetarians who have the most profound influence on him. Then you go to South Africa, there too, you know, it's, it's a time of the Boer War, the coming together of the colonies. Mm. And Gandhi is caught in this massive histor historical journey going on in South Africa. That's where he developed his ideas. His ideas of religious pluralism, uh, his skills as a writer and as a pro propagandist, uh, his political activism, how he mobilizes people, how he goes to jail, how he persuades them to follow his example, how he develops and refines the techniques of non-violent protest. All this happens in South Africa. And uh, apart from all this, there's the personal side. There's the human side. His relationships in S South Africa are very intense and very fulfilling. His relationships with English people, with East European Jews, uh, who are also migrants to South Africa, with dissident priests, with Indians, with Tamil uh, laborers, with Gujarati merchants. So you can see Gandhi, the human being, through his friendships and associations, much more vividly in the South African period, because he's just being shaped. Whereas in India, he's a great towering leader, and either you're his disciple or his adversary. You know, you aren't his friend. And there's a whole series of friends in South Africa who shape him as a human being and as a thinker, and who have been written out of the story. There's a man in my book called Pranjivan Mehta, whom I call the Engels to Gandhi's marks, because he is Gandhi's oldest and closest friend. He's a Gujarati, like Gandhi. They met in London when they're both students in 1888, and their friendship sustains them for the last 20, next 25 years. Mehta funds Gandhi, promotes Gandhi. He's the first person to recognize his precocious greatness. He's the first person to bestow him the title Mahatma. Gandhi's book, Him Swaraj, is written, as I discover for the first time, as a dialogue between Gandhi and Mehta. And these are all people who have been written out of the story, because because we just look at his Indian face. So in all these respects, I think uh, his South African period is absolutely fascinating and also fundamental to the making of the Mahatma. Okay, so um, we, we might think that Gandhi's, um, that his politics in India was, was a reaction to what he saw as the justices in India, but actually did a lot of it come from what he saw in South Africa? Did that then inform what he became in India? Was it as, as much a reaction to a discrimination in South Africa than it was in India? Yes, indeed. So his, uh, the techniques of resistance to unjust authority whether it be racism in South Africa or racism in India, he developed in Durban and Johannesburg. But there's something else that he understood in South Africa, which I think I lay stress on in my book because I think it's been underplayed. Gandhi understood the diversity and heterogeneity of India only by living in South Africa. If he had remained in Gujarat, 
uh, he'd been confined to the prejudices and conventions of his own community, the merchants of Gujarat, the Banias. If he had succeeded as a lawyer in Gujarat, which was his original intention, his clients would have been merchants like him from the middle class. They would all have been Gujarati speaking. They would all have been Hindus, largely. It's when he goes to South Africa that he discovers the diversity of India. You know, he understands the difference between Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Parsis. He understands the difference between rich people and poor people. In Gujarat, all his clients were middle class people. But in South Africa, the majority of the community were indentured laborers. So he had working class people among his clients. And above all, he understands the heterogeneity of language. You know, he deals with Tamils, with Hindi speakers, with Bengalis. And when he comes back to India, he's shaped by the South African experience and he wants to build bridges between different communities in India. He wants to create a composite Indian nationalism that will appeal to Hindus and Muslims and Parsis and Christians, that will transcend the boundaries between upper caste and low caste, that will abolish caste distinctions, that will respect and nurture the diversity of the many languages spoken in India. So all this, it's paradoxically and ironically, it's in South Africa and in London that Gandhi becomes an Indian, rather than simply someone imprisoned uh, in the conventions of his own narrow caste or community. So in all these respects, South Africa is fundamental. We talked quite a bit about South Africa already. What, what do you think was the importance of his London phase for him? Did that shape his later attitudes to the British who were then, of course, ruling India? Gandhi made four visits to London. Mm. The first time he came as a student in 1888 and left in 1891. The last time he came in 1931 as part of the Roundtable Conference. And in between he came twice. Uh, in 1906 and 1909 for several months each time visiting from South Africa to lobby the imperial government to relax uh, the racially biased laws in South Africa. So these three early visits, 1888 to 1891 as a law student and his two trips as an activist from South Africa are the subject of three distinct chapters in the book. And they were very important to him. As a student, he made friends with English people. So he shared a home with an Englishman called Josiah Oldfield, which is very unusual in the 1890s for a mixed race household. He replicated this in South Africa, where he and his wife Kasturba shared a home with an English couple called Henry and Millie Pollack, which was really an act of heresy and defiance, a mixed race house in 1905 in Johannesburg. But he'd already started this in London. In London, he joined the Vegetarian Society. He wrote his first articles in the Journal of the Vegetarian Society. And the vegetarians were a small and obscure sect. But Gandhi learned many things from them. He learned from them uh, the value of dialogue, uh, of reaching out to people, uh, of dealing with people of different races, religions, theosophists, Christians, of incrementalism. The founder of the London Vegetarian Society, Henry Salt, believed that social change happens step by step. And Gandhi took this on, which is why he abhorred armed struggle. And he tried to persuade people through reason, and if reason failed, through non-violence resistance. So the vegetarians shaped him. It's also by working with the vegetarians that he learned his, to hone his skills as a writer. His first articles were published in that journal. So as a writer, as a propagandist. Then when he comes to London again in 1906, 1909, He's deeply impressed by the courage of the suffragettes, women fighting for the vote, who are then very active in London in 1906 and 1909. And he sees them on the streets, you know, braving water cannons and the police with, you know, just with their moral courage. Uh, so all this shapes Gandhi. And he makes, apart from all that, he makes many, many close English friends. And this means that he, um, which in later life, when he's an implacable enemy of British imperialism and he wants political freedom for India, he 
consistently discriminates between imperialism as a system, a wrong and unjust system, mm -hmm. and English people who are often very approachable, nice, friendly, and he maintained close friends with English people to the end of his life. His closest and most intimate friend in his years in India was an English Christian clergyman called Charles Freer Andrews. So all this, you know, ecumenism, this broad-mindedness, his work in persuading people to his point of view, his appreciation of the moral courage of non-violent protesters in England, suffragettes, all this is part of his English experience. So he's questioning British imperialism. He's questioning unjust laws and practices imposed by British rulers. Uh, but at the same time, he's always interested in building personal relationships and friendships with ordinary English people. So by spending time with English people and, and building friendships, it made him less, less inclined to have a violent campaign against people who he, some of them considered his friends. Did that make it easier for him to push him on the path to non-violence? Not, well, partly, but partly I think that was just ethically he was convinced yeah. of non-violence. And one very important figure in this story uh, is the Russian Tolstoy, who was a distant mentor to him. And from Tolstoy, he uh, learned to respect other religious faiths. It's because of Tolstoy that he simplified his life and gave up his successful professional career to become an activist and because of Tolstoy that he abjured non-violence because Tolstoy was a pacifist. So non-violence had its independent trajectory. It's not that he learned it from the English, it had, but still uh, all of this made him much more open-minded, much more pluralistic and the greatness of Gandhi really was that uh, although he was an Indian patriot, his patriotism consisted in loving his own country, not in demonizing or hating other people's countries. You know, he appreciated uh, the greatness of other civilizations, other cultures. He had English friends, South African friends, German friends, American friends, Pakistani friends. And uh, I think his early years in London and uh, the hospitality of the vegetarian society, which welcomed him, is, is important in this. During his time in South Africa, he, he was there professionally as a lawyer, but... And by the time that he'd gone back to India, how important was he as an activist and a political figure by that stage? Well, his ideas were shaped. He had abandoned the law, uh, except when it, he had to appear in court to defend his fellow non-violent protesters. Uh, but he wasn't uh, practicing to make money. So from a professional, successful, wealthy lawyer, he'd become a searching, struggling activist. And all his ideas, as I've argued, on religion, non-violence, community, uh, harmony, had all developed uh, in South Africa. But he remained a leader of the Indian diaspora alone. He was not a great national leader in the way that he became in India. So you could see South Africa as a kind of laboratory where his ideas are tested, are refined, are experimented with, uh, where his mistakes are corrected, where he expands his worldview, where he deepens his moral philosophy. But the theatre is a relatively minor one. He's mm -hmm. acting on behalf of the 200,000 Indians in South Africa. Uh, he is not what he becomes later, uh, you know, the leader of a great national struggle of 300 million people in bondage. So in that sense, South Africa is uh, very important, but it's still a microcosm of what was to become a much larger struggle and political agenda uh, that Gandhi shaped in India. In terms of the Indian diaspora in South Africa, how did they react to Gandhi? Did they, did they <coughs> see him as a natural leader or did he have opponents within that community? <coughs> He had opponents, and he had opponents, some who thought he was not radical enough and he should pick up arms against the British uh, or the Boers, and some who felt that he was too radical, that, you know, especially wealthy merchants 
who are risk averse felt that you know we'll sort of negotiate we'll make our private deals with the ruling authorities uh, if they don't let us open our shop in this white quarter we'll allow it uh, you know we'll bargain with them and say we'll open a smaller one uh, and why do we want to court arrest to uh, you know opposition to racist laws let's just make our peace so he had opponents uh, of a kind he used to have later too because even in India and even today Marxists detest Gandhi because they feel he was didn't take the path of armed struggle, right? So there's some people who thought he was not militant enough. There are other people who felt he was. Uh, so he had certain rivals. He also had rivals who were who were professionally competitive. I mean, there was an Indian journalist in my book called P. S. Iyer who wanted to be the leader of the Indian community, and he was a Tamil, and the Tamils were the majority of the Indians, and he resented the fact that Gandhi, rather than he, was you know the spokesman. So he had rivals, uh, as any political leader would. I mean, it's 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 true of any political. So he did have rivals, but essentially, these rivals in South Africa were marginalised. They lacked influence. This is unlike in India, uh, where although he's a considerable figure and uh, of great moral authority and influence, he's challenged by such equally remarkable people as Muhammad Ali Jinnah of the Muslim League, uh, the founder of yeah. Pakistan, and the great untouchable leader B.R. Ambedkar. So in India, he has major political rivals. In South Africa, at least as far as the community is concerned, and again, underlining the fact that the community is a small uh, community, the Indian diaspora is only 200,000 people, Gandhi is really their leader. He's the main leader. While he was in South Africa, did Gandhi get involved in the struggle for equality for black Africans as well, or was he primarily concerned with oh, no. the Indians? He was a diasporic leader. He was clear that he represented the Indians and needed to fight for their rights. But over a period of time, he was in South Africa 20 years, mm. he became more sympathetic to the predicament of Africans. He started out with the conventional prejudices of his time. When he went to South Africa in 1893, Gandhi thought, as a young man of 24, that the Europeans were very civilized, the Indians were almost as civilized as the Europeans, and the Africans were uncivilized. But over a period of time, he shed these rather conventional racist stereotypes, grew to an appreciation of African culture, African ways of life, started working with Africans, uh, started uh, criticizing uh, the racist regime's treatment of Africans. His own activism inspired the setting up of the African National Congress. The first president of the African National Congress, John Duke, was an acquaintance of Gandhi. And uh, of course, later on, his methods were used quite successfully by the African National Congress and for very many years. So insofar as Gandhi constructed a struggle against apartheid, the Africans were not politically active in 1905-1910 when Gandhi became active. So the African political movement which followed was inspired in part by Gandhi's efforts on behalf of the Indians. And uh, if you go to South Africa today, they recognize Gandhi as an important leader of the second rank. You know, he's not, of course, in Indian history, he's paramount. Mm. He's our great nationalist leader. In South African history, there's Mandela and Tembo and Ruth First and Steve Biko. But Gandhi is seen as one of many people who prepared the way because he led some of the first struggles against racially discriminatory laws. And over a period of 20 years that he spent in the African continent, he grew to a deeper appreciation of the suffering of the Africans. But having said all of that, he remained a community leader and he was really there only to represent the Indians. And so clearly this was a very important time for Gandhi's political development. In terms of his personal life, what kind of man was Gandhi at this time? Well, Gandhi was a man cap uh, capable of um, very deep and abiding friendships with people of different classes, communities and religions. Uh, so uh, even across gender boundaries. So he had a very close relationship with his friend Henry Pollack's wife, Millie Pollack. 
His Jewish woman secretary, Sonia Schlesin, uh, was someone who could argue back at him. He respected her views. Uh, there was a Tamil uh, hawker called Tambi Naidu, who was a, whom he respected greatly. So he was capable of deep and abiding friendships across racial and religious and class lines and gender lines, which is unusual for anyone and particularly for an Indian in 1905. At the same time, he failed as a husband and even more as a father. As a husband, uh, he was a typical Hindu patriarch. He took his wife for granted. Mm. Uh, uh, he wasn't respectful of her views. Over a period of time, she uh, recognized the importance of Gandhi's struggle and they developed a companionable marriage, not a deep romantic marriage, but mm. a they adjusted to one another. But with his sons, he failed, particularly with his two eldest sons. It so happened that Gandhi had his children very early. His first son was born when he was 18. His second son was born when he was in his early 20s. And when uh, and this is this doesn't happen normally. I mean, I had my first child when I was 30 and most people have their children yeah. much later. And in Gandhi's case, because he had his children early, his midlife crisis coincided with his children's adolescent crisis. Gandhi's son was born when Gandhi was 18. Yeah. At 36, 37, Gandhi was abandoning a successful career as a lawyer to become a social activist on behalf of the Indians. So he was going through his own midlife crisis, a career shift. The son was going through an adolescent crisis. The son wanted to educate himself like the father once had. The father had become a barrister. The son wanted to learn the English language and become a barrister. But Gandhi felt, now that I've abandoned my career for struggle and sacrifice, my son should follow me. My son should be the first person to court arrest. And the son, to his great credit, the Gandhi's eldest son, a man called Harilal, courted arrest, courted arrest six times. And one of the real thrills of my research in the South African archives was to find the son's jail record with his fingerprints, which I found in the archive. But after having courted arrest several times, he told his father, but I want to study. You became a lawyer. I want to become a lawyer. And the father did not understand. The father also did not understand the romantic love that his son Harilal had for his wife. Harilal had a deep romantic emotional relationship with his wife uh, and whom he loved dearly. So when the life, wife left for India, he wanted to follow her. He didn't want to be separated from his wife and child. And for Gandhi's service to the community always came before family life. So he chastised his son for, in a sense, for loving his wife too much. So there were all these misrecognitions and finally there was an open breach where Harilal defied his father and said, I'm going back to India. And so it's a very tormented, sad relationship. Uh, which I describe at great length in this book, uh, based on the letters that the two father and son exchanged. And Gandhi does not come out very well. I mean, Gandhi was a, a great model figure, an inspirational political leader, a person of exemplary physical courage, uh, but an indifferent husband, and at least with regard to his eldest son, Harilal, a lousy father. How close was Gandhi at this point to the image we have of the later Gandhi dressed in the loincloth, denying himself many things? Was he already living that kind of frugal life at this point in South Africa? Gandhi had already begun in South Africa to simplify his life. So he, for a long period he wore English dress because he appeared in court and you in the South African court you couldn't appear in Indian dress. You know, he went early on wearing a turban and the judge told him to take out the turban. So he wore English dress but he was simplifying his life. And he stopped, uh, he discarded possessions, he gave away all the jewels that the family had, he, uh, he, he was a vegetarian, uh, he became celibate, he worked with his own hands, he dispensed, dispensed with servants, uh, he started his own rural community where everyone farmed and cultivated and built their own houses and cooked their own meals and washed their own clothes. So he had begun this process of radically simplifying his life in South Africa. 
but he started wearing Indian dress very late. It's only in 1913 uh, when the white police fired on a crowd of striking Indian miners and killed several of them that Gandhi, in sympathy with the striking miners, adopted white, Indian white, homespun cloth as a sign of mourning and sacrifice. So it's only towards the end of his South African period that he actually took to Indian dress. And in my book, there's some wonderful photographs of Gandhi wearing European dress, looking, you know, quite dapper. So uh, though he had started simplifying his life and his needs and working close to the land, uh, doing all the household labor himself, uh, he did not adopt Indian dress till relatively late in his South African state. And so by the time we get to the end of where your book is, how close then is Gandhi to the Finnish Gandhi? Does his period in India develop him a lot more or is he already pretty much the, the Gandhi that we, that we come to know so well at this point? Well, although his uh, essential moral and social ideas are in place, the theatre is still a limited one. He's right. only a community leader of the very, a small community of Indians in South Africa. The theatre in India is much larger. It's a subcontinent composed of 300 million people with a bewildering diversity of languages and classes and castes and religions. The political uh, uh, framework of British India is extremely complicated. Different provinces, large parts of India under the rule of native Maharajas and Nawabs. Uh, there's already an active political movement. Uh, so uh, it's a major struggle for political independence that he's part of. Uh, it's a time in which the two world wars happen. Uh, which have their own implications on India. The Russian Revolution in 1917 also has its ripple effects in India. So the scale, the historical scale is much larger. And operating on this much massive historical stage in India from 1915 to 1948, Gandhi's views are changed, refined, adapted, reshaped. His impact is much greater for good and for ill than it would be in South Africa. So it's a different story. I mean, mm. in a sense, his ideas and his personality are largely shaped. Uh, but uh, the scope of his activities is so much larger and the background to what he's doing is so much more complex and so much more uh, intense that the story will have its own momentum and its own uh, excitement, I hope, regardless of South Africa. And do you think that when, when he came to India at that point, did he already have an awareness of how important a man he was going to be, how important his role was going to be in history? I think so. I think he was a person possessed of an unusual self-confidence. Of course, great courage. He faced several assassination attempts, which I talk about. But also, he had a sense of his importance. Uh, he's, in 1906, he's writing to the Congress Party. Uh, he's saying, you know, you better adopt my method for forging Hindu-Muslim harmony. You can learn from what we've done in South Africa. In 1909, he's writing to Tolstoy uh, that you invented the theory of non-violence. But I've put it in, we have, we Indians have put it into practice in the Transvaal. And what we have done in the Transvaal in uh, a practical application of your methods is going to influence the whole world. So, you know, he has a sense. I mean, in 1909, he's writing to Tolstoy as a small lawyer mobilizing 10,000 Indians to go to jail. He's saying my method, your method as perfected by me is going to have world historic significance. As indeed it did, as you yeah. see, and it continues. But it shows a striking self-confidence, you know, for, a, for an obscure lawyer in a, in a colony in, in distant South Africa. Yeah. Something you said right, right at the start, you said that you think uh, and I read it in another interview that you've done that Gandhi is the most important, most influential person of the 20th century. I'm interested in how you sort of come to that view because there must be so many other people that could be considered for that, for that title as well. Yeah. Well, I think my reasons are that uh, Gandhi had multiple careers. Gandhi was not just a great nationalist leader. You know, Jefferson was a great nationalist leader. 
Uh, Churchill was a great patriot who came, whose finest moment was leading the English in their fight back against the Nazis. De Gaulle, likewise, he was a great French patriot who helped free them from German colonial rule. Uh, Mao Zedong, uh, the same thing, right? a great nationalist leader. Gandhi was to be a freedom fighter and a leader of his own uh, of a political struggle against colonial rule. That was only one of Gandhi's, shall we say, careers or vocations. A second vocation was that of interfaith harmony, building bridges between people of different religions. A third was to pioneer the technique of non-violent resistance. Neither Churchill, nor Roosevelt, nor Mao Zedong pioneered a new political method that could be used across many different situations, not just against a colonial ruler, but in a single country opposing a discriminatory law. Look at the way it was used by the civil rights movement in, in North America, for example. And finally, Gandhi was also a precocious environmentalist, which is something uh, gl only glimmers appear in this book, but that will be developed much further in volume two. He understood the moral and, and environmental damage that unbridled industrialization and consumerism would do. So unlike most political leaders who are politicians first, last and foremost, Gandhi had four careers. He was a politician, a social reformer, a religious pluralist, a theorist of nonviolent resistance and an environmental prophet. And it's in all these dimensions that he's had a global influence. So, uh, you know, Gandhi's uh, name resonates everywhere. I mean, in the most strange ways. I mean, there's a famous Brazilian samba band that has called itself after Gandhi, for example. Gandhi's name was invoked in the Arab Spring. The Yemeni's leader, Tawakul Karmal, who was the youngest person to get the Nobel Peace Prize, she has a photo of Gandhi in her study. So does President Obama on the other hand. Right. And at the same time, Gandhi also evokes derision and anger. You know, Marxists still attack him. So Gandhi attracts great admiration and also extreme hostility so long after he He's died in so many different cultural and national contexts. I think that uh, that's what makes him special. Uh, it's a historical judgment. It's not a partisan appreciation in favor of Gandhi. I'm simply saying because Gandhi had multiple careers and he had interesting and original things to say and controversial things to say about so much that he's still actively debated in parts of the world that he never visited, which is not the case with Churchill or Roosevelt or Mao or de Gaulle or any other uh, 20th century figure. And finally, do you, th do you think there are any modern figures nowadays that could be compared to Gandhi, or has no one ever really come and matched him in his achievements? No one has ever come and matched him, I think. Uh, but there are people who have followed his ideas in, uh, in interesting ways, uh, you know, some outstanding social workers, social theorists. But of course, it's, there's no one who can truly... It just the scale of his activity, the time in which he worked, the time of colonialism, the world wars, the fact that he was worked and struggled on three continents. Uh, it's hard to think of anyone uh, you know, who will have that kind of influence or resonance in the years ahead. That was Ramachandra Guha. His book, Gandhi Before India, is out now, published by Alan Lane. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your thoughts on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. One listener who contacted us recently was Eddie Horwood from Oakland, California. Eddie writes, I love this podcast. Here, in a land not known for its respective intellect, it's delightful to receive the delicious weekly history injections. And I really love that your presenters don't try to sound like hyped-up DJs. Don't change a thing. We love nerds. Thanks for your message, Eddie, and we look forward to hearing from more listeners in future. And you can, of course, keep in touch with us on social media as well. We're on Twitter, at History Extra, plus you can like us on Facebook, 
facebook.com forward slash history extra. And don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find news, blogs, image galleries, quizzes, and a whole lot more. Next week, we'll be talking about a remarkable Tudor voyage and taking a trip to a village that was devastated by the Black Death. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and on location in London and produced by Jack Fletcher. Thank you.